Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, July 16th, 2014. We will be doing our light episode today, normal time slot, normal day. This is like a normal week. This is abnormal for me. Normal has been abnormal. Abnormal has been normal. Things have been flipped upside down. Total pandemonium, chaos, all coming to a, an end. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to slow down and stop and open up our Bibles and see if what uh, people are saying God's Word says is actually what it says. If people are teaching sound doctrine or if, well, they're making merchandise of people and scratching itching ears, there's a lot of money to be made in scratching itching ears, and that's really kind of an unfortunate and sad thing. Uh, but uh, we test to see what people are saying to see if it squares with the historic Christian faith, which teaches historic biblical uh, sound doctrine, and when it uh, deviates, we point out where it deviates and how it deviates so that you can learn how to properly understand your Bible and to protect yourself from false teachers. Now, part of the idea of learning discernment is hearing good, solid biblical teaching, and that's what we do every week with our light episode of Fighting for the Faith. Oftentimes, I hand the microphone off to somebody else and uh, and let you hear what it sounds like when somebody humbly correctly, works their way through uh, God's Word. And we've been working our way through a series of uh, lessons taught by Pastor Ron Hodel of Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California. And uh, he's been working his way through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're, we're like up to lecture, well, this is like week eight of our of our encounter here. And so we're going to get right to it. And uh, it, again, the idea here is listen to what sound biblical teaching sounds like as he exegetically works his way through the entire book of First Corinthians. So without any further ado, here's Pastor Ron Hodel. All righty, we, um, we're ready to begin. And we are uh, at chapter 6 of First Corinthians. Let me just read the first eight verses. <clears throat> When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then 
matters uh, pertaining to this life. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is really a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. All right. Um, Paul seems to have made a shift from, uh, from what he's been talking about to a whole new topic. But really what's going on here is the same thing. Same thing he's been dealing with. It's a different situation, but it all stems from the same problem. Uh, the, the link between the Corinthian congregation's failure to expel that immoral brother who was uh, living with his father's wife and the uh, litigation between brothers in court, the link there is their unwillingness, is their unwillingness to condemn and restrain their own sin, uh, to die to themselves, to go to the way of the cross, uh, so that, that's really the link. And so this section really isn't so much about lawsuits. It's more about dying to yourself. Um, and that is what the Corinthian congregation was absolutely unwilling to do. In fact, they were more interested in not dying to themselves. They were more interested in manipulating their fellow Christians for personal advantage. And one of the places that this can happen is in court. And so suing one another is the presenting problem. Um, but the underlying problem, the systemic problem in this whole thing, the really big problem uh, is a lack of love. It's a lack of compassion for a fellow brother or a fellow sister in Christ. Um, and you've got to deal with the systemic problems. Uh, uh, otherwise, Otherwise, all you're doing is putting band-aids on festering wounds, okay? And you're not dealing with the real issue. And so one of Paul's concerns, just as was his concern with that incestuous situation, is the good name of the congregation and the good name of, of Christ, the head, the head of the church. And so a failure to deal with the incest situation that discredited the congregation in the eyes of the people of Corinth. He even said that, that what you're allowing is so bad that it makes even sailors blush, and you're not bothered by it at all. All right, um, and uh, and and um, taking especially the poor to court. And I'll comment on that in just a little bit, so that you can grab what is not your own. Um, that was dragging Christ and his church through the mud as well. So really, this is not a diatribe at all against the court system. It's not a diatribe against lawyers and the, the legal system. It's a broadside against Christians who are absolutely not willing to die to themselves. And by not being willing to do that, they are damaging the church and they're leaving a bad witness to the rest of the world. That's what's really going on here. Um, the, the, the key verb that ties uh, chapter 5, the incest situation, 
Um, and uh, chapter six, uh, this lawsuit situation, the, the, the key word that ties this whole thing together is the word to judge. I think it comes up about six times. Um, and and uh, specifically in both chapters five and in chapter six, Paul says they should judge. They should judge. Um, first, among themselves in chapter five, so that the, the name of Christ isn't damaged, um, so that the so that the church is not made a laughing stock out in the community. You know, if that's the way Christians are, then I don't even want any part of being a Christian. And then in chapter six, uh, they should judge among themselves and not take others, other Christians to court and thus damage the church's reputation out in the world to say nothing of what it was doing to Jesus' uh, good name. Now, uh, what do we know about the legal system uh, in uh, in Paul's day, the Roman legal system. And there are a number of things that we do know. Uh, and uh, um, very briefly, uh, the Roman criminal law system was generally what you could call fair and objective. All right. But the civil side of the law was not so civil. Um, and one thing we do know about most civil cases in Roman courts is that they were brought by the wealthy against those who had lesser means. And judges and juries were, uh, well, they just expected kind of a quid pro quo, a a payback for a favorable verdict. Imagine that. Um, And so the judge would more often than not rule or side with with the side that could pay him back. Right? which, of course, was the more wealthy of the, of the parties. Um, so kind of a major, major problem. Um, now, if the wealthy Christians were living by the rules of the culture that they lived in, all right, uh, as Christians, we are in the world, but we're not to be of the world. All right? um, but if they were not only in the world, but also of the world, and, and living according to the rules of the culture, then what might have been happening here is that the wealthier Christians were exercising their legal clout over and against the poorer members of the congregation. Um, the church wasn't acting any different than the world. And this comes up again. Uh, it comes up again in, in uh, the the conversation about eating together in chapter 11. Um, What was happening in chapter 11, and Paul goes on to uh, talk about the Lord's Supper, is that the wealthy people were, you know, if they didn't have to go to work, they'd come to church in the afternoon. Let's say it's an evening service. They'd come to church in the afternoon. They'd have a party. They'd eat up all of the food. The offerings would all come in, you know, and and generally speaking, what would happen is offerings, uh, some of the offerings, which would come in, in the form of food and and, and uh, uh, drink and clothing and, and the needs of, of, of the people, uh, some of that offering was reserved or set aside to be used in the Lord's Supper. All right? And so maybe at some churches you've seen uh, the process where during the offering, the offering is taken, and then not only is the offering brought forward by the, by the ushers, the elements for the communion are brought forward 
as well because uh they they you know they were purchased with offerings their offerings and 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 they're brought forward and then that that has been that then is consecrated and and given to the congregation so what was happening was the congregation or the wealthy in the congregation not having to work they'd come to church uh, they'd have a party they'd eat up all of the food they'd drink all of the wine and then when the poor would get to church not only would there be no food for them to eat and and drink but also there's nothing reserved for the Lord's Supper. You see? And so Paul says, what? Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? You know? So that, so this kind of thing was happening uh, all over the place in, in uh, the church in, in Corinth. And so the wealthy, uh, the, the wealthy were, um, were misusing things. And uh, this is what's going on here. Um, uh, the, the wealthy taking the poor to court. And uh, Paul was outraged by it. He begins with a rather emphatic, how dare any one of you? Verse 1. Um, Paul doesn't simply frown on the practice. He's outraged by it. Um, Paul saw seeking judgment at a court where, where the justice is questionable, um, where things are rigged in, in your favor. Paul saw that as obscene. Um, so six times he says in this chapter, don't you know, don't you know, you know, for a congregation that was supposedly so gifted with knowledge and wisdom, he says, come on, don't you know, you should have known better. You're so wise. Um, and Paul being trained as a Pharisee, uh, knew some of the ways that the rabbis used to, um, to, uh, to write and, and talk uh, in, in his day. And one of the ways, ways the rabbis would, would, would speak is from light to heavy or from heavy to light. Uh, uh, and so that's what, that's what Paul does here with the, with the Corinthians. Jesus had said, the apostles will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And in verse 2, uh, Paul says, the saints, that's us, will judge the world. We will judge the world. So if the saints, that's us fellow Christians, are entrusted with the heavy task of judging the world, then surely we can handle this light uh, conflict between, between brothers. In comparison with the task that is awaiting us at the last day, these cases in Corinth are trivial. They're trivial. Um, from from uh, judging the world to judging just these little menial things going on in the congregation. Um, now we don't judge the the world as independent individuals. All right, we uh, corporately judge with Christ uh, in in glory. All right, so it's not you get uh, you get uh, uh, New York and you get Las Vegas and you get uh, <laughs> Dana Point and uh, <laughs> you know um, uh, no. And then, and then Paul goes on in verse three. He, he does the same thing. He says, uh, he talks about the angels and the angels are ministering spirits. The angels, angels serve the heirs of salvation. Okay. That's you. Angels serve you. And so since God's children are superior to the angels, Paul again argues, if you can judge the angels, and most probably there he's talking about the evil angels, all right? Um, 
Can't you judge the things of this life? Goodness gracious. And by mentioning the things of this life, he's, he's getting at worldly things, which are usually the subject of lawsuits. Um, and Paul's pointing out that Christians really should have their sights set on things above and not on the things of this life or, the, or, or, or on worldly things. And that's what he's saying in, in verse 4. Um, uh, verse 4 has been translated in various ways. I think the New International Version uh, says, Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of no account in the church. Now, that doesn't seem to be a really good uh, translation because it's as if there is in the church Christians who are of no account. And, and that doesn't seem the way that Paul would consider Christians. Um, uh, 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 he doesn't seem to be getting at things that way. Uh, neither would he say that there are people who have no standing in the church. Um, Paul's probably using an old uh, rabbinic teaching to get his point across. Um, there was a there was a rabbi uh, contemporary of Paul of, of Saint Paul, Rabbi Tarfon. Actually, he was born when uh, about the time Paul died, but his teaching would be very uh, reflective of earlier tradition in Judaism. And Rabbi Tarfon wrote this. He said, "In any place where you find heathen law courts, even though their law is the same as Israelite law." You must not resort to them. And I think what's going on here is Paul is expecting no less from Christian people. Uh, when Christians let their dirty laundry hang out to dry out in public, um, the church has made a laughing stock. Uh, and when Christians uh, vent their anger and hostility in public places, um, they kind of confirm the unbeliever's rejection of Christianity. You know, if that's Christianity, count me out. I don't want any part of it. All right. Um, so uh, what Paul's saying is deal with these things yourself. Um, if you're going to be involved in judging the world, if you're going to be involved in the judging of angels, you ought to be able to resolve this. Um, but the reason why you're going to have a, such a hard time, you Corinthians, in resolving these issues is because you're more interested in winning than losing. You're more interested in being first as opposed to being last. You're more interested in gaining a life as opposed to losing it. And of course, there you hear an echo of Jesus. Um, uh, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And then a little bit later on in Matthew 19, Jesus writes, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Um, you're having a hard time resolving this because you don't want to give up winning. You don't want to give up being first. You don't want to give up your life. All right. Um, so the answer is not kill all the lawyers um, and back there and uh, Jim is Jim here Jim's not here he even he well we got him okay uh, <laughs> that's a misquoted line from Shakespeare by the way uh, I believe how that uh, it goes um, that that in order to to take control of the of the of the nation, 
um, what you're going to have to do is get get rid of the opponents uh, and people who can defend the nation first, and that's the lawyers. And then once we get rid of them, then we can go after uh, after things without uh, having to deal with courts and things like that. Um, so uh, Paul's answer here is not kill all the lawyers. Uh, his his answer is, you Christians have a change of heart, be who you are. Um, so Paul's not belittling non Christians. He's not against lawyers. He's not against the judicial system. You know, in fact, he pays a lot of uh, homage uh, and 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 honor uh, to to the to the. Uh, to, to authority um, from just Romans chapter 13, the first verse, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Um, Paul argues that those in authority have been assigned their positions outside of the church. They've been assigned those positions, their vocations, from God himself. Um, so, so they are doing God's work. Um, outside the church, they are to be honored, respected, just like any other person doing their vocation. Inside the church, their position takes on a little bit different role. Um, and Paul does not hide the fact that he is trying to shame the Corinthians. In a congregation this wise... There must be at least one individual who can help settle this matter in a, you know, between Christian brothers. And so Paul's solution, uh, verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Um. What Paul's doing there is he's reminding them of the way of the cross. He's challenging them to become, you know, go ahead and be mistreated for the sake of Christ. Um, he's saying it'd be better for you to yield up your rights than to, than to deprive a Christian brother of justice and then also to defraud a brother in Christ. It'd be better to do that. Um, and so, but, but rather than uh, follow their Lord in the way of suffering, the Corinthians are more interested in inflicting suffering on each other, uh, even on their own Christian brothers, and most probably the ones who can least afford it, and the ones who are the most vulnerable to it. Um, and it's like Paul is saying, uh, where is your Christian love? Just, would you help me understand this from God's point of view? Where is your Christian love? Um, where's the spirit of forgiveness? You know, you're not exactly a guiltless one. Where's your spirit of forgiveness? Um, what, is this what you've learned from your merciful Lord who has freely forgiven you for everything? Is this what you've learned from God? This is the way you're supposed to deal with things. And you want to take some poor brother to court and beat the heck out of him uh, just because you can. It's because you've got the money, you can get the judgment to go your way. Um, now, you know, just kind of a, as an aside, does this mean that Christians should shun secular courts altogether? And, and the answer is no. Um, as a, as a children of the Reformation, we understand the right and the left hands of, of God, you know, the, the hand of power uh, and the 
the, uh, and uh, the, the two kingdoms doctrine where God rules over the world with his left hand by means of the law, the sword, uh, in the hand of secular authorities. And God rules over the church using his right hand, the hand of grace and mercy and forgiveness and love. Uh, and secular courts being God's left hand, so to speak, um, do God's work. Uh, Paul even used the courts for his own defense. Um, uh, before, before he was a Christian, he asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if any were found belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And then, uh, later on, uh, 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 He's, he's beaten, and he says, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they, not, do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. Uh, he, uh, he has rights, and he, he says, I, I want my day in court. Um, and, and as a Roman citizen, he's allowed his day in court. Uh, he regarded Roman authorities as ordained by God uh, and and accountable to him. And he's, and he's not talking about some easy guys to submit to. Um, you've got emperors who are burning Christians uh, as street lamps, you know. Um, and he says, honor authority. Um, uh I guess really it kind of boils down to what is our motivation for using the courts. Um, any thoughts or comments on these these verses here, um, Barry? Um, this section of scripture reminds me of um, in Exodus. I guess uh, Moses's father-in-law comes out and he observes that Moses is handling single-handedly many, many disputes and being overwhelmed. And uh, I was just wondering your comments on whether this kind of lines up with that. He suggests basically um, choosing kind of an underling court of believers right. who are uh, schooled in God's law and are believers. And he says, let them handle the smaller disputes and allow you eventually to handle ones higher. I was wondering if there's kind of a linkage or a connection here and similarity. I think there's a, I think there's a similarity. Uh, um, what we've got there is a theocracy where, where uh, church and state are kind of tied very much together and we, we have a separation of church and state. So there's a, a little bit of difference there. But that, but that, um, Moses be busy doing the things that he's, he's to do and that others handle, you know, the, the vocational things that they, that need to be handled that they can handle. Um, and, how it ties to the Corinthians. Um, I think what he's getting at is, is that these things can be resolved by, by people who have people who have wisdom in the congregation. Um, that doesn't mean, you know, that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, well, I guess what I would say is we would, we would certainly incorporate uh, those who have a knowledge of, of, of law, uh, even inside the church. Um, to give advice and to, to help us understand things and to help mediate different situations that come up. So, so uh, in in uh, I know in our synod we have a, a, a Christian mediation uh, program. So that if congregations are, you know, if there's a congregation that's in terrible terrible dispute, 
um, the reconcilers would come in and help the congregation think through things. But, but instead of arguing from the context of, of, uh, you know, who's going to get more money or something like that, it's from more from the context of who are we as brothers in Christ? Um, and help people come to an understanding of that. Uh, and then, then deal with each other as brothers as opposed to as fierce opponents. Yes. It's going. I guess um, what I think about here is also um, the difficulty sometimes of separating um, actions from persons when we're judging. It's so sometimes it's it's very hard to um, just look at look at the actions and judge those actions and still love the person. Uh-huh. Still uh-huh. be able to show forgiveness and and mercy and and love sure. for the person and help in that situation to look at what that person is doing separately from uh, sure. them as sure. a person. Yeah, well, it's easy to vilify people. Um, uh, um, and yes, it's a very difficult thing to separate the action from the person. Um, Paul's going to be talking about this a little bit later on uh, um, when he's going to be talking about uh, um, the unrighteous acting unrighteously or being unrighteous, acting unrighteously. And as righteous ones declared righteous, you would expect that we would act righteously. Um, and But then there are times that we don't, and this is where the law and the gospel need to come in and, and forgiveness and being called on the carpet via the law and being offered forgiveness via the gospel. Sure. Any other comments on on this section? There was a thought actually I had when we were talking earlier, and she actually I think brought it up, and that is that I think sometimes as Christians we forget to um, distinguish between judgment and condemnation, because clearly we can judge a person's actions, mm-hmm. but we can't condemn the person, right? mm-hmm. especially as Christians. I mean, I'm not going to go and and condemn my brother for to whatever condemnation I think I might be able to execute upon him, but I can go and say, hey. What you're doing is wrong, and, and here's why, and you know you need to to, to you know do it about faith. Yeah, perfect example is yeah. is the last chapter. Um, Paul judges the situation, um, and uh, he does it on the basis of the word of God, um, and we are called to do that. Um, but yeah, very good. All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash piratechristian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at piratechristian. Quick break, we come back the balance of today's lesson as Pastor Ron Holder works his way through the book of 1 Corinthians. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We will be right back. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> 
Tops. Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Quando. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. I'm here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm going to give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay, when I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Quando, we use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. You think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off, my students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now, for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. We're back. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor never actually, you know, teaches God's word in depth. That's kind of a problem, but thank you. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts and financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons are right there in the middle of the homepage. Uh, One of them says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to 
support us. And of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of today's lecture by Pastor Ron Hodel on the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, here we go. Okay, well, let's go ahead and go on to the next section, um, verse 9, 10, and 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Um, Or uh, links what Paul's been saying before with what follows. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And the way Paul uses the word unrighteous there is synonymous with unbeliever. All right. So in the in the context here, unrighteous is the opposite of brother, someone in the faith. So unrighteous, unbelieving people are characterized by unrighteousness. Uh, Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And in verse 29, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. Uh, They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, on and so forth. Um, But... You know, it's very important for us to make no mistake. None of us have pulled ourselves up and made ourselves righteous by pulling ourselves up by our own, you know, righteous bootstraps. Um, We're not righteous because we're not righteous because we don't commit any of these acts. Um, And I say don't tongue in cheek because, well, we do. And we're going to see that Um, we're only righteous by the grace of God because God's law has brought us to repentance We've heard the gospel by which God has worked on us. Or do you not know that the right, the unrighteous will not inherit? Okay. And that whole picture is that you don't deserve, you don't, uh, you don't earn an inheritance. Um, you receive an inheritance, uh, because you were born or adopted into a particular family or some uh, such case. Um, those who are born of water and the Spirit are born into God's household, so they inherit the kingdom of God. But Paul warns the Corinthians, don't deceive yourselves. Don't think that there's no difference between the unrighteous and and the righteous. Um, The whole be who you are comes into play here, Um, the indicative imperative. Um, You don't make yourself righteous by doing righteous things. Um, You've been declared righteous. So... Be righteous. Do righteous things. You've been declared righteous. So do righteous things. Um, uh, Indicative. You've been declared righteous. Imperative. Be righteous. All right. Um, Now, I'm going to go through the list that Paul gives us here. And uh, no doubt your mind is going to drift to other people who revel in these kinds of lifestyles. 
And you will think, ah, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. All right? But no doubt as well, you'll start to see yourselves in the list too. And that's a little bit scary because the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And even as God's people, we catch ourselves and are caught doing unrighteous things. So thanks be to God that uh, John in his first epistle sheds some light on this. And it's a verse that we, you know, we know um, by heart. Um, I, I think if you know, if you know the liturgy, you know, at least 39 Bible passages by memory. Um, you probably can't say them. You probably have to sing them. Um, but uh, that's okay. That's why they're stuck there. Um, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right. Um, so, uh, so thanks be to God that that's, that's, that's the word of God to us. And so the point is, if we're wrestling... If we're wrestling, not that we're necessarily successful, but if we're wrestling with the lordship of these sins in our lives, um, forgiveness is ours in Christ. Um, If it doesn't bother you, um, if you seek to justify yourself and say this behavior isn't sinful, um, Vicar talked about that in his sermon this morning, then the truth is not in us. Uh, Then we're in danger. My colleague in Northern California used to like to say, God loves children because they sin. Not because they sin, but because they know they sin. You know, child, child getting caught doing something wrong knows they did something wrong. You know, and they try to hide it. They they'll do all kinds of things. They'll be sad. They'll go to their room. They all act very differently. But but uh, they know they've done something wrong. Adults, that wasn't wrong. That wasn't sinful. You know, we'll defend ourselves. You know, um, all the way all the way down, we'll defend ourselves. So um, so. The things that Paul brings up here are persistent things, persistent practices, not just isolated instances. And uh, Paul doesn't suggest that a Christian who was tempted into an act of sexual immorality or idolatry or adultery or theft or even homosexuality and on and so forth, or stumbles every once in a while, is forever excluded from the kingdom of God. That He says that would count all of us out. Um, what he's saying here is that the new life we have in Christ is no longer characterized by the constant practice of these things. And so Paul begins his list and he begins with sexual sins. Um, We always go to the sexual sins right away, right? I don't know why that is, but we do. Um, But really the reason why Paul does is here, uh, sexual immorality he talks about. The reason it comes first in the list is because it's connected immediately to the practice of idolatry, which is second on the list. Because idolatry often included a visit to the shrine prostitutes. All right? And that is a big deal. Um, those who fear, love, and trust in anything other than God will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so idolatry, trust, fearing and loving and trusting something other than the true God, idolatry, and participating in its worship practices, which includes sexual morality, um, puts you at grave danger. Uh, and then he mentions adultery. So what's the big deal with adultery? Um, it's a sin against one's own body, he talks about. And... Uh, you can think of one's own body there, not only my physical body, it's a sin against my physical body, but it's also a sin against the body of Christ. Okay? 
Um, your body is the home of the Holy Spirit. If God dwells there, it ought to be pure and, and a holy place. Um, and as we talked about when we talked about marriage, marriage isn't just a partnership between two people who love each other. Okay, that's kind of what it's gotten boiled down to. Um, marriage is a picture of the communion between Christ and his bride, the church. That's what it's pointing to, Christ and the church. And adultery, apart from breaking a vow made by a man or a woman to each other, um, it makes a lie of what marriage is a picture of, Christ and his church. That's, that's a real problem. It, it, it goes beyond just me and my wife, it goes to it goes to the church. It goes out to the world. It makes a lie of that, you know, uh, to the to the world. Um, so sexual immorality, adultery, um, or uh, sexual immorality, idolatry, um, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality. Um, uh, again, um, a relationship. The relationship uh, in marriage is one of Christ and His bride, the church. All right. And the Bible is very clear on on affirming a one man one woman relationship, and probably we should do a whole section on on homosexuality. Um, but uh, this is condemned as well. Um, now, as an aside to that, um, our current president, and I think all the presidents of uh, our Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, but especially our current one, President Harrison, has made the point that if we're going to if we're going to talk. Uh, about homosexuality, then we also um, need to, in a very compassionate, caring, pastoral way, uh, care for families and for uh, people who are challenged by it as well, and not just be out there uh, in a condemnation way, but also in a very uh, caring, compassionate way too. Um, so sexual immorality, idolaters, uh, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality. I like that list because I don't do any of those things. Uh, I thank God that I'm not like other people. Um, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers or even like this tax collector i fast twice a week i give tithes of all i get but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying god be merciful to me a sinner i tell you this man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted um so as i said that's uh, tongue in cheek from me and Paul goes on then to list some other sins. And after he lists those sins, he repeats, people who live this way will not inherit the kingdom of God, which really underlies the gravity of this whole situation. Um, so these sins also cannot be ignored or condoned by the church. And participating in them is a, in, in, uh, constantly is a rebellion against God. Um, and sins listed right along with the big, bad, nasty ones that, thank God, I don't do. Well, he nails all of us, doesn't he? Um, thievery, greed, drunkenness, revelers, swindling. Thievery and greed kind of takes us to the, to the seventh commandment. Thou shalt, not, thou shalt not steal. What does this mean? 
What does the catechism say? We should fear and love God so that we do not take our neighbor's money or possessions or get them in any dishonest way, which sounds like the wealthy Corinthians taking the poor ones to court, doesn't it? Um, but help him improve and protect his possessions and income. Okay? Thievery and greed. And so we, uh, we have to let the law ask us some diagnostic questions, you know? Do you cheat or otherwise seek to get what you haven't earned? Um, do I care for what I have? Pay what I owe? Return what I borrow? Respect other people's property? Do I give generously or am I selfish, greedy, and stingy with my time? My money? Am I unfaithful to the responsibilities of my vocation? Do I steal from my employer? I'm sure that doesn't include time on the internet. Oh, my goodness. You know? Thievery and greed. Um, drunkenness. Living a life under the influence of something. Um, the word means somebody who's habitually drunk. And of course, alcoholism, uh, or alcohol is what gets picked on in this verse, but there are all kinds of things that possess us as people. Things that we need to feed you know, revelers, um, revilers, not revelers. This is not a condemnation of parties, all right? Um, reveler, revilers are those who criticize abusively. They're the ones who can take the varnish off your desk. Uh, they're the ones who uh, always make you feel about this big, um, you know, uh, Others are good at doing it to us, and we're kind of good at doing it to others. Then there's the swindlers, those who covet, those who scheme to get their neighbor's possessions by hook or by crook um, in ways that only appear to be right and legal. Again, the idea of the wealthy taking the, the poor to court in Corinth. But again, in all of this, remember, when the Bible speaks of the righteous, they are righteous not of their own volition. Uh, they're righteous because God has caused them to repent. And God gives them his righteousness. He imputes that righteousness by grace. Right? They're, right, they're righteous. We are righteous. We are believers. Uh, they are brothers by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Um, the unrighteous, they refuse to see this. They refuse the gift of God's grace. And the way they live then often says something about who they are. Um, they are unrighteous. They are unbelievers. And they... Live unrighteously. But it doesn't work the other way around. Uh, if someone doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, doesn't dance, and doesn't go with girls who do, all right, um, that doesn't make them good Christians. It might make them a good neighbor, uh, maybe, um, but it doesn't make them righteous in a biblical sense. It doesn't make them Christian, all right? Um, what Paul's describing here are the days of the Corinthians before their conversion, he says. Um, some had at one time lived this way, but that was in the past. Um, uh, it's very similar to what he writes in Titus. Uh, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, um, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, by the renewal in the Holy Spirit, um, whom he poured out richly on us through Jesus Christ our Lord. All right? So 
This is what they were, but a change has taken place. God's grace has overcome their sins. And uh, the Christian, by the power of the Spirit, then is to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Um, as such were some of you. Um, but now, who, who you are drives what you do. Will you fail at it? Yeah, we'll fail at it. Um, we'll fail at it because we're not only saints, we're still sinners through and through. Saint and sinner at the same time. But at the same time, you're righteous with a righteousness that that's not your own. It's Christ's. And he's declared to be righteous. He's credited his righteousness to you. And so Paul says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Um, that's an indicative. It indicates something about you. It states what God has already done for you. What God has already done for the Corinthians. He's converted them. And so Paul first uh, reminds the congregation, reminds them of who they are. You have been washed. Your sins have been washed away. And of course, that's baptismal language. That's the washing of water through the word language from Ephesians chapter 5. That's the washing of regeneration language out of Titus uh, chapter 3. He's talking about holy baptism here. You were washed. You have been sanctified. You have been declared to be holy. You are a people dedicated to God. Um, and so what they've become by faith ought to be in practice and living. Be who you are. Uh, you have been justified. Um, you've been declared righteous, declared just. Um, and these three things have been done for them. Okay. So, so kind of going from, well, thank God I don't do any of those sins. I'm in because of what I do. No, I'm in because of what he's declared me to be. Um, they didn't do this for themselves. They didn't clean, they didn't clean up their act and start flying straight and by their good lives then are declared to be righteous. Um, these things have been done for them. Uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the, by the spirit of our God. And that's, that's kind of a, that's a, a Trinitarian formula. It mentions Jesus. Um, it mentions the Spirit. And God is the Father. Um, it might have even been a, a, an ancient baptismal uh, formula. It's like in the book of Acts when, when Paul talks about being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ or uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Um, it's shorthand. Uh, it's a shorthand Trinitarian formula for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, next week, we'll start off with verse 12. All things are lawful for me, okay. but not all things are helpful. Um, we'll start off with verse 12 next week. Um, we have a couple of minutes. Um, I think that clock is a little, little slow. Um, any thoughts or comments? Bob? Way in the back there. Uh, yeah. Um, I think we're not... Paul doesn't mention the natural consequences of a lot of these sins. In other words, almost every one of the things he's talking about, there are natural consequences, earthly natural consequences, not necessarily judgments from God, but... It, can you comment on the fact that that 
when we're living, um, I hate to say a righteous life because we don't do that either, but if, if we're avoiding these um, sins, we don't have natural consequences that are detrimental to our life. Therefore, it's just better for us to avoid them from an earthly standpoint, not only from a um, godly standpoint, for lack of a better. Could, uh, just could you comment on that? Sure. Um, Paul uh, Paul talks about it. When you when you keep the law, um, then the authorities don't come after you. You know, uh, 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 and and so um, when 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 we're not committing these things. There are some very good natural God. God knew, God knew what He was doing when He designed it this way. All right, um, uh, and so so yeah, you you avoid a number of natural consequences in in, in some cases. In other cases, no. You know, um, uh, um, Job, for instance, um, lives a godly, righteous life, and lots comes his way that. You would say shouldn't come his way, but but in a general context, I don't have to worry. Um, where's my dear bride? There she is. I don't have to worry about some, you know, uh, some fling that I had two weeks ago showing up, you know, in her email. I don't have to worry about that. It's a nice thing. It's a blessed thing. Yeah, and she me. Um, there can be a an openness, uh, a vulnerability there that's a wonderful, blessed thing. Yeah. On and so in, goes from there. Let me go to Dave and then just, Cindy. Just a quick comment on that last verse. Uh, the past tense and the order of the words, uh, kind of baptism, sanctification, justification, it's kind of interesting to see sanctification before justification. Do you have any uh, yeah. comment on that at all? Yeah, the, the commentary that uh, that I'm depending on mostly, which is the Concordia commentary uh, written by Gregory Lockwood, uh, who's one of our uh, friends in Australia, um, says there's no 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 thing we should get from the we shouldn't try to dig something out of that order. Um, he's just speaking, and and so yeah, sanctification comes before justification. Paul's not trying to make a point because um, otherwise, what we'd have to do is go through his other the other things that he's talked about and, and do, uh, and, uh, you know, when he, when he talks about you're justified, you're, and, and sanctification follows justification. Um, and is, we'd have to, um, weigh what Paul's saying against what, what other things he said. And he's very clear in other places. So don't make too much of the order. Yeah. Along the same lines with that verse. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had many conversations about the sanctification issue with um, people who aren't necessarily Lutherans who really believe they need to work at their own sanctification. This, because it's the past tense and these these issues, kind of blows that out of the water. Yes, it does. It's done. Yeah. So can you comment just what would be their motivation then for still wanting to pursue that? It, it doesn't make sense to me. It's already done. Those coming out of the evangelical world might have a little better way of thinking about it than I do. Um, I, I uh, we're a, we're a we're a people who likes to know where we how we measure up. I think you know we like to figure out how where we are on the on the spectrum. Um, 
evaluating ourselves. I'm just kind of going off the top of my head here. And if I can look at my life and see how it's becoming more and more sanctified, uh, maybe I can feel a little bit safer that I'm, that I'm in. I don't know. Um, the, the flip side to that is, is the, the danger in that is, um, uh, you know, from a worldly standpoint, what goes up must come down. And so I've worked myself up here with this beautiful life of sanctification. And then I fail miserably at something and wham, now what do I do? Um, whereas if, if I know that my life is going to be going all over the place, but God has justified me. He has sanctified me. He has washed me. He has declared me to be his child. I know how this whole thing ends. I can, there's where my, my faith and my trust can be. And yeah, I, I, I try to, to lead a life, a righteous life because I've been declared righteous. Um, but dare never measure myself by any of that. Um, let God measure me there. Cause even in my wonderful sanctify, have I, have I done it from the right motives? Well, I did it to earn something. Well, was that the right motive? I should have just done it. Um, yes. It seems from my experience with some of my evangelical friends that not a lot has changed since Calvin in, in the sense where <clears throat> there's this perception of the Christian world here. And that's what, you know, there, it's, it's not just this kind of, well, I work to get to heaven you know, or I'm, I'm a good person. It is actually creating a Christian world here that is comprised of our behavior. And that is what I think is key in understanding the evangelical, um, motivation is that it's not just, you know, we, I think as Lutherans, of course, rightly are taught, uh, in, in such a, we have a mindset where we do what has been given to us for the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And that Ironically, Lutherans create these whole worlds of social services and work for the poor and whatnot. But yet, the concern or the, the the evangelical perspective is creating that Calvin-like Christian world here. And I think that that is a key motivation I try to keep in my mind okay. when I see. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, yeah. no, that'd be yeah, that'd be very very much so. Sure. Well, I think it's always, too, the constant struggle of help my unbelief to believe. We simply cannot accept that grace. We struggle as Lutherans even in that. And um, and so, um, you know, we just it's it's something that we that's very difficult sometimes to forget. And we go down that rabbit hole and and let go of it too and and so we all struggle with that at points but mm-hmm. this is clearly it's a grace it's nothing and and not being able to accept it that's the point in time when we're never sure then of our own salvation that's what's so sad about because if you always have to do something more then you're not accepting the grace yeah good all right well we're going to break here uh, sunday school children are about ready to get out so the lord be with you Thank you. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. 
Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>